Okay, as Ian said, we're going to continue in Revelation, and tonight we're going to look at the letter to the church in Pergamum, and it begins in Revelation chapter 2, and beginning from verse 12. So that's Revelation chapter 2, and beginning from verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's come and pray. Father, we come to you and seek you. And sometimes it's so easy to maybe think that the situation of churches and Christians and these Biblical days are just so very far removed from where we stand today, and yet we know that again and again we find the same truths. Again and again we find the same conflicts and battles because human nature has not changed and because you are unchanging. So, Father, we pray that you will speak into our hearts and help us to apply your word to our lives and to our church. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it can be a a strange thing to see something of yourself in someone else when, say, you see somebody reacting, maybe one of your children, one of your family, in a situation in just the way you would. It can be even stranger when somebody else claims to see this. For instance, Elaine claimed, and I think she still would, that my personality doppelganger is Victor Meldrew, (laughs) the archetypal grumpy old man featured in the classic TV series, One Foot in the Grave. What's my response to that then and now? I don't believe it. (laughs) Yes, it is. In a sense, though, I felt a little bit the same over the last few Sundays as we've looked at these churches in Revelation, for it's almost been like looking at the church of today in our nation. So relevant is the word of God, I think, being to our situation. Well, this certainly isn't going to change tonight as we move on to look at the church in Pergamum. In fact, the word the Lord gives to this church, I think, brings us face to face with some of the biggest threats and challenges that face evangelical Christianity in our days. So let's look at the church of Pergamum. And the first thing that I want to say to you 
is that they dealt with the obvious and they dealt with it wonderfully well. What do I mean by that? Well, the key is understanding just what the what situation the situ, what the situation was the Pergamum church was in, and the words that open this up for us are there in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has its throne. You see, in, in five of his letters to these churches, what the risen Jesus says to them is, I know your deeds. Palms in five out of seven. But here he says, I know where you live, where Satan has its throne. Now this difference, I believe, tells us that these words are significant. But in what way? In this way, I believe. In that while Ephesus could be seen as the trading capital of Asia Minor, and Smyrna as its cultural capital, yet Pergamon was its political capital. It was the headquarters in Asia Minor of the mighty Roman Empire. And as such, it was the epicenter of something that we've talked about in previous weeks, of the emperor worship that was dominant at that time. That is the practice that at certain times in its history, Rome Rome demanded of those living under their authority. That demand to worship the emperor as Lord and as God. Now, Lanza, I think this was a, a political device. This was a way of testing that people were ready to bow the knee to Rome, that they were ready to grovel at their feet. But so terrifying an abuse of power is this, so fundamentally evil is this, that here in Revelation, Rome is seen as a symbol for Satan, and the headquarters of Rome, Pergamon, is seen as the place where Satan lives. And this is where the Christians at Pergamon find themselves. In Satan's HQ, in the centre of emperor worship. But look at what the Lord then has to say to them. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you did not renounce my name. You, you, even in the days of Antipas, who was put to death in your city. You see, living where, where they did, they obviously had been put under pressure, tremendous pressure, to bow the knee to Caesar. They'd been put under great pressure to worship him as God. But you see, they know who holds the real power. They know who truly, actually is Lord and God. They know that though Rome politically wields the sword as the symbol of their this world imperial power, yet that it is Christ who holds the sharp double-edged sword. That it is, that is, it is Christ who alone has got ultimate and sovereign power. And so the Christians at Pergamum resist Rome. They refuse to give in to Rome. They refuse to bow the knee and worship as Rome wants, even though one of their number, Antipas, the faithful witness, is put to death as a martyr. So Pergamum dealt with the obvious and dealt with it 
wonderfully well. And yet it would seem, as we're now going to go on to see, that they fell to the subtle. They fell to the subtle. Yes, having dealt with the obvious head-on challenge so bravely and so faithfully, what the devil then did was he sneaked in and got them from behind. How did he do it? Well, verse 14 tells us, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, you can read the, the story of Balaam and Balak and Balak, sorry, in Numbers 22 to 25, but, but the basic point of it is that, that together they tempted the people of Israel into idolatry and into immorality. And they did this by getting them to compromise with the, the practices of and to enter into relationships with the pagan peoples who surrounded them. And so because of this, in Jewish thought, Baal in particular, he's remembered as the father and the symbol of compromise. Now, the Nicolaitans who are mentioned here, it would seem more guilty of exactly the same thing in John's day. And we can't be precisely sure, but it would seem likely that, that these men were a, a group of teachers who'd been influenced by a prominent Christian teacher, Nicolaus, who had gone off the rails. And now these men, in turn, having learned from him, they were spreading out among the churches, including Pergamum, leading people and churches astray. And their, their basic message seems to have been that once you are saved spiritually, that once through Christ you've been set free, then you are free, particularly free, to do with your body whatever you want, whatever you like, live how you like. Now, as is always the case with heresy, there is an element of truth in this, but it's also at the same time, it's a perversion of truth. It's a pushing of truth beyond its legitimate boundaries. Because while we are set free in Christ, we are free from sin, free from guilt, free from Satan, death and from hell, yet we are not set free to live as we want, either physically or in any other way. No, we are set free, free to live for Christ and his glory, free to live for him, free to live in the way that we were created and free in doing so to find life's greatest joy in serving him. But the Nicolaitans' perversion of freedom would, if we take what's said here seriously, and in the teaching, of, in the light, sorry, of the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, would seem probably to have, have centred, concentrated on two main areas. Sexual immorality first, that people were being told that they could engage in, in relationships outside of marriage, including with, with prostitutes, the temple prostitutes of the pagan temples, and also to do with the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And just to give you a bit of background, the, situa the situation then in pagan cities, such as Pergamon was, was that most of the meat sold in the markets was meat that was surplus to the sacrifices in pagan temples. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 8-10, to 10, Paul there laid out what he saw as the Christian position on this. That Christians could eat meat, 
bought in the market. They could do that since it couldn't be contaminated by association with idols who didn't really exist or have any real authority anyway. But that Christians should not eat meat in the temples. They shouldn't engage in temple feasts because that would involve them actively in the worship of and with all that went along with that of false gods. Medical items, though, you see, they, they rejected that distinction. Their motto was, eat what you want, drink what you want, go where you want, do what you want with whoever you want. And some of the Christians in Pergamum, it seems, went along with this. A few of them fell for this. Why? Why did they do it? Of course, they did it because it's what the flesh, it's what that, that sinful remnant of our human nature, it's what it always wants to hear. It is. But what kind of witness is this? To a holy, sinless God. What kind of witness is living like this to a pure and perfect God? And what kind of example would they be to their pagan neighbours? What would those looking on say was different about these Christians? What would it be about their lives that would make them want what they had? Absolutely nothing. Of course. Nothing. And so these Christians, this church at Pergamum, this church who had brought Christ glory by the way that they dealt with the devil's head on attacks, now here dishonor Christ, are brought to their knees by the devil's more subtle attack. Now, is this relevant to us? We ask, well, I think it is. I believe it is. I think there is a danger here that we, we need to be aware of. For still, I think today, in churches like ours, we're, we're relatively good. At being on guard against those who stand outside the church and who are obviously hostile to the church. But you see, our biggest threat continues to come from those who would actually claim to stand with us under the banner of Jesus as Lord, who would claim to be Christians, even evangelical Christians. And yet, what they believe in regard to many key biblical doctrines is actually, in fact, a million miles from what the Bible actually really says. Now here we're talking about things like, for instance, the emergent church where men like, like Steve Chalk, who once were evangelicals, who still claim to be evangelicals, but who in reaction in part to the past history of the church and in an attempt at the same time to keep in step and be in step with today's culture, have largely neglected the very concept of absolute truth, have so rejected the authority of God's word, with everything else then that the Bible teaches, then being up for grabs, open for a reinterpretation that then fits in with what culture and society today wants, even demands. Now, I just want to be fair here and say there is another stream to this, not just the emergent, there's also something called the emerging church, and they would claim that actually their reaction is, is against some of the negative, non-biblical stuff that can clutter up church life and that can hold the church back. It's been around for generations. And, and it's that that they want to get rid of. And they want to get back to being a real biblical faith community while at the same time holding on to, to biblical truth and living lives of real 
discipleship. But we've looked at some of the things that surround us, particularly at Steve um, and his teaching, his more recent teaching, quite recently. So what I want to highlight for a little while tonight is I believe a continuing subtle danger to the church is what's called the prosperity gospel, or the health and wealth, name it and claim it teaching. You know, I once thought that this was just your people, a few people, who just went a little bit too far in minor, non-essential areas. But over the years, at different times, I've looked at a little bit more detail at what they're actually saying until some of them are miles off in key areas. But because they're saying what people want to hear, because they're promoting a worldly Christianity, they're having a, a massive impact, have for a number of years in the United States, and they're a, a growing presence, and a growing influence, I think, in our country, through um, cable TV, you know, the different channels that you can find, Sky, etc., online. Uh, and as I say this, I, I want to say, please don't think this is an anti-charismatic or Pentecostal thing for me. Because while many of the, the main teachers of this movement would claim that they're rooted in that tradition, I want to say so also are some of its fiercest critics who come from a, a similar background in many ways, but are also firmly biblically based. Like a man, Andrew Brandon, who wrote an excellent readable little book a number of years ago on this subject called Health and Wealth. That's one guy. Then there's a book, Christianity in Crisis, by a man called Hank Hanegraaff, a guy from the States. Now, Hank is himself an unusual character. He's had some different views over the years. And, and the tone of this book that's written in the United States, where he feels he's fighting for the future of Christianity, and where he himself has at times come under fierce attack, it is, I have to say, a little bit aggressive here and there. However, the substance of what he says in this book is very impressive because he quotes word for word what some of these men have actually at different points said on Christian television or written in Christian books. Now, one or two people who've uh, looked at this book for me, being gentle and gracious, have said to me, you know, maybe it's being taken out of context. I've shown them little bits and they've said, oh, maybe that's taken out of context. My reply to that is I would actually defy you to find a context in which some of these statements would ever be justifiable. And others have said, surely every preacher gets little things wrong now and again. Well, of course, most do. Not but <laughs> we're not talking about little things here. We're not. We're talking about consistent major error in key areas of the Bible's teaching. And, you know, the original review of this book in Evangelism Today is, I think, very interesting. Here's just a little excerpt. It says, Every so long a book comes along which completely upsets the status quo. This book is just such a book. So why is it taking years to become officially available in Britain? Could it be because it has the temerity to criticise some of the world's best-known and biggest-selling Christian authors for heresy? Authors who are published by the same publishing house. But you may not want to ask, well, but what is it these people say? What is it they teach that's so bad? Well, actually, so much. But I've only got time just to give you just an outline of one or two basics 
And just a little idea of some of the knock-on effect that this actually does have on, on big biblical doctrines. So just to begin, the essence of the, the faith movement, where it all began through the teaching of men like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, it lies, not surprisingly, in their understanding of faith. Because you see, they teach that faith is the basic substance of the universe. That God created the universe by faith and that God himself is a faith being. And he is subject, like us, to the laws of faith. We see, having created this world by the, the force of faith, having made man also as a faith being, God then found himself in a bad position as man sinned. I quote Kenneth Copeland here. He says that Adam committed high treason. And at that point, all the dominion and authority that God had given him was handed over to Satan. Suddenly, God was on the outside looking in. Have you got that? God's on the outside. Powerless. Looking in. So how then can he get back in to this world that he made by faith? How can he begin to use again the force of faith? Only when along comes a man of faith, Abraham, who speaks the words of faith that allow God to act again. For you see, they say, this is the law of faith that God himself is bound to. And words are all important here, all important in this theology and thinking. Because words are the containers, the vessels that carry the substance of faith. In faith theology, if you speak words of faith, you activate the positive side of the force. If you speak words of fear, you activate the negative side of the force. And this is called making positive or negative confession. And the bottom line of this, this is where it all ends, is that everything in life that happens to us is a direct result of our faith or our lack of it. Uh, do you see? Do you see where this is, is getting us, where it's taking us? Frederick Price, one of the teachers, sums it up like this. He says, God has to be given permission to walk in this earth realm on behalf of man. Yes, you are in control. So if man, if man has control, who no longer has it? God. That's breathtaking. Breathtakingly awful. But you see, what, what the word of God actually says, what the Bible actually says, is that God created this world out of nothing, not out of faith. And he did it by an act of his sovereign power. God didn't create the world by his faith. And any attempt to say otherwise is a distortion of the Bible's teaching. God is not a God of faith. No, he is the God who we are called to place our faith in. He is the object of faith, never subject to faith. And all this talk about limitations of God, all this talk about God having to be given permission. I remember, you know, you heard a few times, 
God, we give you permission to move in here tonight. Rubbish. It's frankly blasphemous. Just listen, for example, to what Psalm 135 verse 6 says. It says, the Lord does whatever pleases him. In the heavens and on the earth. In the seas and all their depths. And you know all of this, when people speak the way these guys do, makes God angry. Psalm 50, 21, 22, reducing, when we try to reduce God down to our size, this is what it says. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who reject God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue you. But you, know, you might wonder, having heard this with these kind of views, how do these kind of people, how do they handle people in the Bible, especially someone, say, like Job? Never mind the apostles and disciples and Jesus himself, but just an example. Job, a man of great faith, great faith, and yet someone who suffered tremendously. How do they handle that? Well, actually, it's no big problem, because this is what Benny Hinn said on TBN about Job. He called him carnal, bad, and said that his mouth was his biggest problem, which is a bit like the old kettle and teapot there. Anyway. But you see, that's what he says. But God in his word calls Job upright. Benny Hinn calls him carnal. When God calls Job good as he does, Hinn calls him bad. When God says that he'd spoken right, Hinn says that he'd made a negative confession. Indeed, the Lord declared to Satan, Job 1 verse 8, that there is no one on earth like Job. No one. And yet, quoting from Hank Hanagraf this time, this is what Benny Hinn says about Job. He says, despite the somber one, this is Hank Hanagraf first, despite the somber one and of Psalm 30 verse 6, do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and call you a liar. Still, in spite of this, Ben Hinn adds the words never to the text of Job 121. You know that, that verse, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And by doing that, completely reverses the meaning of this passage. For encouraged by his audience, Hinn says, we've said this a million times. And it's not even scriptural. All because of Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I have news for you. And says that's not Bible. That's not Bible. The Lord giveth and the Lord never taketh away. And just because he said blessed be the name of the Lord doesn't mean that he's right. He was just being religious and being Religious doesn't mean you're right now. Listen, I know Benny Hinn is a popular writer. And I wouldn't go as far as to say that there's nothing good in what he's written. Though I personally would always look elsewhere for my reading material. I've got to be honest about that. But Benny Hinn, like others coming up behind him, popular young men, for example, Joel Osteen, they have been influenced by faith teaching. 
It runs through what they say. Actually, Benham's reported they've repented of this recently, but it's about the third time it's done it, so I'll wait and see. And, and we need to pray for these men. We need to pray that they'll turn from this. They've made a lot of money out of it. It's worked for them, but we need to pray that they'll repent. But we also need to pray for ourselves, that we will be on our guard, on our guard against this. Because where this twisted theology leads some of these men to on key areas of biblical teaching is actually scary. For instance, that on the cross, Jesus received a satanic evil nature and died spiritually. Now you see, they say that because their theology means they cannot accept that the Son of God could suffer crucifixion. And this leads on that his blood has little consequence that what mattered was that in hell he was tortured by Satan for three days and that was the ransom paid by God to redeem the world. It's all totally unbiblical. It's actually a spiritual obscenity. But some would maybe want to challenge here, you know, who are you, a Baptist pastor and a a corner of Scotland. Who are you to challenge men like this who've got massive international ministries? How do I reply to that? What's my reply? My reply is that I'm not surprised that they have massive ministries. Because with their promises of health, wealth and prosperity, they are saying what this world and also sadly what a weak carnal Christianity wants to hear. But let's remember that the kingdom of God is not ultimately about size and success. We don't despise these things. We want them if they're right. But they're not our first priority. Now the essence of what we are about is truth and faithfulness. That's our measure. Is this true to the word of God? Is this true to what we know of him, of his character? And are we being faithful because of what we're hearing and putting into our lives? Are we living lives of faithfulness, lives that line up with the Bible and particularly that are in line with the life of Jesus? But one final word, response. What should our response be to this letter? To the church at Pergamon. Well surely no different. Than the response Christ required. Of this church. Repent. Repent. That we might not face his judgment. Verse 16 he says. Repent therefore. Otherwise I will come to you soon. And will fight against you. With the sword. Of judgment. Now what repentance must I think first involve for us is, is looking at our life, looking at our church life to see what is there, what is going on, asking the question of ourselves, are we handling the head-on attacks of the devil? Are we handling the subtle attacks? Are we handling them well? You know, is my life, is our church life firmly based on truth and is it actually lived out in faithfulness? And this matters. It does matter. Verse 17 makes it clear it matters. It says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, manna was, of course, the, the supernatural food. 
originally given to the people of God in the wilderness. And then in John's Gospel, in John 6, there Jesus made it clear that he is the new manna from heaven. That he is the, the new and true bread of heaven. And that he feeds his people and alone is able to feed them with life, with the life of God. And then when it goes on in verse 17, it says, I will also give him a new stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Well, you see, at that time, this kind of stone, the Teresa, this was the tablet, this was the, the ticket that you needed in order to gain entrance to the banquet. And it was often a white stone. It was made of, of white stone with the invitation details inscribed on it. And what this church here then, and what I believe we are being reminded of here, is that God's people, those who love him, are faithful to him. Those who have tasted of his life, the life of heaven, through faith in Christ. Those who overcome and keep on going, that one day in heaven, at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we are going there to be filled to the full with all the good things of God. All his love, his joy, his peace, and more. And God says, bear that in mind. So while it can be tough and challenging to be a Christian, and it can be though, it's always joyful and always fulfilling if we're living close to him. Yet it is all worth it. It's all worth it. Because of what God has for us in Christ. Now, but also in eternity. Standing for truth. Living faithfully. It will all be worth it. More than worth it. When at that feast we stand face to face with Christ. Knowing that we've pleased him. That is the future. For the faithful people of God. And Jesus encouraged the church then. As he encourages now. Us now. To look forward to this but also to rejoice in it. Rejoice in it now. Let's come and pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for your word, for what your word teaches us about your heart for your people, your desires for your people, how we can be a people that please you. Lord, we thank you also for the, the warnings that we that we find in your word that tell us about the kind of things that can win the people of God away. So Lord, help us to continue to seek to live truly following a crucified but risen Savior. Help us to realize that in our lives we will know the suffering that comes with following you. But Lord, that we also know your resurrection power, your victory. Father, help us to truly live as your people in our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.